Today we're going to just focus more on the authority of the church to be able to do this, that we have the right from Christ, from the Lord, that we should be able to do this. But the last two sermons really lays the foundation. So I'm going to assume that you've already listened to that sermon and just focus on verse 18. So you're going to hear some things that might sound very strange to you tonight. Um, but I'm assuming the knowledge of verse 15 to 17 already understood and applied. So if you don't understand, you, I, I, I want to open up and say, if you want to talk to me afterwards, please do. Um, if you have questions on this, this is a very confusing topic. I think it's a very misunderstood topic. And I think it's just a very forgotten topic. I think there are very, very, very few churches who practice what we call church discipline. And therefore, it's difficult when we have to do that because we will stand out. But we'll see here that we'll, by doing this, we will experience the presence of Jesus um, when we do this. So let's read again the word of the Lord. Matthew 18 from verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray together. Father, we, we bow low before you. As low as we can, Lord, because you are God. You are the creator. You are eternal. We bow low, Lord, for you are worthy. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to receive all glory, not just some of the glory. All glory be to Christ, our King. His rule and reign we will ever sing. Lord, what a joy it was to, to sing that to you because you are our first love. What a joy to also just hear your words from, that we've read earlier in 1 John. God, you are love. But your love is a holy love. You are a holy God. And therefore your love purifies us. It purifies your bride, your church. And that's why you've given us church discipline. Father, so I pray and ask you for your mercy upon us. I pray that we will have open hearts, a humble mind. Help us to hear what your word says and to, and to, and to obey that, Lord. As Heritage Baptist Church, I pray that we would be ready whenever we have to obey these verses. Father, I pray for Claxtell Baptist Church, who is in the process of doing this, Lord, that we would be obedient, that we would not fear man, but fear you and trust you, Lord, as we obey you. But Lord, above all, give us clarity of mind. Help us to understand this and to avoid mis misunderstanding so that we may truly love you and love our neighbor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, Romans 1 verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Beloved, there is 
No more amazing news in the universe than the good news of the cross, the gospel. That God sent his only son to die for our sins so that we can receive full and free forgiveness. Not half forgiveness, but forgiveness of all our sins. Think about it. Is there more amazing news in the universe than the reality that we who were born in sin, enemies of God, under the wrath of God, can be reconciled to God through the blood of the cross? Is there a more amazing reality in the universe than receiving the love of God poured out into our hearts through His Holy Spirit that He has given to us? This gospel is powerful. We simply need to open our mouths and proclaim it to people. And God will do the rest. God, through His Spirit, will use this simple message that God is our Creator. We are sinful, yet Christ is gracious. So repent and believe the simple gospel to save people. I was yesterday in, a, in the KFC drive-thru, so I just want to confess that I also eat KFCs from time to time. And as I was in the drive-thru, I saw in front of me a bucky full of young people. Now, if I say they're young people, I don't know what that makes me. But, um, but in this, in this bucky, um, the person driving was drinking alcohol. And even while we were waiting, the person was throwing out the alcohol out of the window, I don't know, to just mock and joke. And, and the, the car was full of smoke of the smoking in the car. And, and my heart was just breaking for these, for these young people. And, and I just wondered, while I was sitting there in the car, what can possibly change these young people? Who, what can possibly show them that they need a savior, that they need to be saved from their sin. How in the world will they ever understand? And the answer is the gospel. The answer is the gospel. The good news of Jesus can humble proud sinners and heal humble confessors. The gospel can humble proud sinners and heal broken sinners as well. That's the power of the gospel. But unfortunately, in our age, in our time, in our day, the gospel has suffered in the form of what we may call cheap grace. Cheap grace. The gospel has been robbed of its offensive power to actually heal people, to actually change people. Because we've replaced the gospel by what we might say a feel-good message that essentially says this. You are already okay as you are. Now you just need Jesus. Your life is good. Now you just need the cherry on the cake of your life. God loves you unconditionally. He doesn't ask much from you. In fact, he doesn't ask anything from you. God doesn't say, you must. No. You must just believe. Believe and you will be saved. Now again, there are, there are some truths sprinkled in that message, but it is woefully short. That is a very shallow gospel. When we fail to mention the sinfulness of our sin, when we fail to mention the righteousness of God in judging us, that if God gives us what we deserve, we go to hell 100% all of the time. If we fail to mention the true need of repentance, turning away from our sin, that you can't, cannot have Jesus plus your idols, you cannot have Jesus plus sin. And when we fail to mention the cost of discipleship, that being a Christian is hard. It is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. When we fail to mention these things, we are preaching a half gospel to people. And we are not helping people. The way the book of Romans have, has been set up is very instructive. Paul spends three chapters on the sinfulness of sin. Chapters 1, 
you are not good. Chapter two, you are not good. Chapter three, you are not good. Do you get the message? And then brief, and then he turns to the good news. And that is so, so important. If people don't understand how bad we are, they will never see their need to follow and to accept the Savior. The crucial bad news must precede the crucial good news. Imagine for a moment very effective and great but bitter medicine. Just for a moment. Some people have tasted this medicine and they, they've been healed. But they've, they have this bitter taste and they realize, whoa, people are not going to like this. So let's just dilute it a bit with a lot of water. Just, but there's still some medicine in so that at least people will drink some of the medicine. At least they will have something. But then what happens is it loses its power to actually heal. It, it tastes better. But it doesn't change. And in a similar way, that's what the gospel has become today. The gospel has been diluted with so many positive things and even true things of Christianity that it has lost its sting. It has lost its power to rescue us and heal us from our sin. And a diluted gospel has led to a diluted Christian. A diluted gospel has led to a diluted church. We have swallowed whole the idea that there are no demands for the Christian. There are no requirements to follow Jesus. That you can be a Christian and not submit to Jesus. You can be a Christian and not repent of your sin or follow him in obedience. In other words, we have bought into the lie that we can have Jesus as a savior, but not as our Lord, as our king, as the one who can command us. And just to say, this is where the paradox of Christianity is. True freedom is when you are a slave of Jesus. Not the, you see, so you think you are free when you can do what you want. That's not freedom. You are then a slave to your passions, to your sins, to what people think of you. To, but true freedom is when you are a slave of Jesus. That is when you are truly free because Jesus is a good shepherd. <laughs> but beloved, we need to return to this biblical Christianity that requires people not just to make a decision for Jesus, but to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him wherever he leads. And that's where church discipline comes in. This is where this topic comes in. Church discipline is the bitter medicine that God has given us as a church to keep the church healthy, to keep his bride holy and pure. Without this, without church discipline, the church will be sick with sin. Sin will be running through the church and we won't say anything because we're so scared of offending people. Like Jesus say, we will lose our salt. And what will happen if we have lost our salt? What does Jesus say? Then we are good for nothing, to say it in a modern way. We are useless. You can be thrown out and be trampled because if the church is exactly like the world, then we have no more power to, to change the world. Jesus looks irrelevant if we are exactly like the world, if we deal with our issues the same like the world, if we are living the same like the world. We cannot be that. We cannot live like that. I just want to say, um, I know these sermons on church discipline is not easy to listen to. Even this sermon, I, I, I'm not assuming for one moment is easy to listen to. But I just want to clarify something that I think will be helpful to you. And I want to say it. I am not here to entertain you, but I'm here to shepherd you 
as your pastor, I'm here to, to show you the truth because I love you. And I love this church and I love Jesus even more. And that's why I'm willing to preach uncomfortable sermons that will keep us healthy. So, beloved, we, are, we have been looking at important aspects of church discipline. And last week, just to recap, and this is going to be on the outline, last week we looked at the purposes of church discipline. What is the purpose of it? To restore us, to reconcile us, to bring us back to the church and to Jesus. And then we also looked at some important principles of church discipline. Um, and just to recap, here are the, the basic steps that Jesus says we must take if there is sin within the church. Look at verse 15 to 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus says, what must we do when there is sin happening towards us or sin in the church in general? Step one. Go and tell the person his fault alone. Don't gossip about it. Don't talk to other people about it. Go to the person in person. Step two, take two or three. If, if that fails, if the person doesn't want to repent, take two or three brothers or sisters with you to establish the facts so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses and then plead together. So now there are two, three church members coming to the person saying, listen, don't do this sin. This is going to destroy your life. You are no longer representing Jesus by living like this. Come back, repent. And if that fails, now we do step three, which is tell it to the church. We go, we take it to all the members of the church. We say, listen, this brother, this sister has fallen into sin. Let us now go. Let us pursue that. Imagine if you start sinning and here comes the whole church. <laughs> Wouldn't that at least cause you to think, well, maybe I should think twice before I continue with this. Because now the whole church is praying, the whole church is coming, the whole church is pursuing that, that person and saying, please don't do this, please come back. But if that fails, Jesus gives us the last step, which is you must treat that person like a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning in short, excommunication. Practically, that means that we must remove the person from membership and forbid the Lord's table from that person. Because the person is denying by their deeds that they know Jesus. So that's what he says. Now, just to be clear, this, just to clarify, this is not something that Pastor Rian does. This is not something that the elders do. This is something the church must do. Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax And he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to all the disciples. All Christians must be convinced this person is no longer a Christian. We no longer view this person as a Christian. Sorry, just to clarify, not the person was saved and then was lost, but we no longer view that person's statement of faith or profession of faith as credible. That's what it means. We still love the person. We still evangelize the person. We still open our doors for the person. We, so we don't shun the person, but we, we, we have changed our view about the person's salvation. But you might wonder, but... Where, how in the world do we have that authority to, to, to tell somebody that they are not a Christian? That sounds like something only God can do. Who has given us, the church, the authority to be able to say to a, a professing believer that that profession is either credible or it is not? That that person is saved or that person is not saved? Who gave us that authority? 
Well, that's why verse 18 is in your Bibles. Verse 18 is the difficult verse, and we're going to camp most of our time in this verse and in chapter 16. And this is the third aspect. The third aspect of church discipline is the power of church discipline, meaning the authority of the church to be able to do this, that the church has the power given by Jesus to be able to make authoritative declarations about people's professions of faith. And look at verse 18 again. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, let's just apply some basic Bible study. Um, so first clue to what this text means. It is in the context of church discipline. So this binding and loosing and whatever that means must be understood in the context of church discipline. So if anybody makes it about prayer or, you know, we have authority to, I don't know, whatever other interpretation you hear, no, it's wrong if it's not about church discipline. Okay, just take the context. But the second clue to what this text means is to know that this is not the first time Jesus says these words. This is the second time he says it. The first time he said it to Peter in chapter 16, and we're going to go back to that. Let's go to chapter 16, because here we have to just do some work, some, some Bible study work to understand what, what, has, what is happening. Here. Let's read Matthew 16, verse 15 to 19. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Interesting. So just to say there is a debate in the church about what does Jesus mean when he says on this rock I will build my church. Um, some think it's Peter, some think it's the confession of Peter that you are the Christ. And this is a key text for the Roman Catholic Church to say, see, Peter is the first pope. Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. But we're going to see that that's, that's a wrong interpretation of this verse. Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to all Christians. We're going to see that now. And, and we see that concept again of the binding and the loosing, right, in verse 19. But let's first just focus our attention on those, the first phrase of verse 19. What does it mean when Jesus says, to you I give the keys of the kingdom? What does that mean? Let's just first focus on that. So here, here's a, a basic understanding of what the word key and what that really means. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, writes that a key always implied authority to open a door and give entrance to a place or a realm. Let me just repeat that. So a key in the Bible always implies authority to open a door or give entrance into a place or a realm. Now that's, that's simple enough because isn't that what we do with normal keys? If you think about, I have a key to my house, so I have authority to open for whomever I want and, and therefore I can give you access to my house. That's what a key does. And here's a biblical illustration of, of, of a key. Um, Jesus says, Revelations 1 verse 18, I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the key to allow people into death or not. He has authority over who dies and who doesn't die. So Jesus has that authority. He has the keys of Hades, the keys of death. Jesus has authority over that. So that's what, do you see what the word key means? Key means I can open this door that you may enter in. Now, coming back to Matthew 16, verse 19, when Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the basic meaning is Peter is given the authority 
to open the door for people to come into the kingdom of heaven. He has that authority. But now we have to answer, how does he exercise that authority? How does he use that? And there are two ways Peter uses the keys. Number one, the keys are used by preaching the gospel. The keys are used by preaching the gospel. By preaching the gospel and the good news of Jesus, the, the doors of the kingdom of heaven are unlocked and open wide for anybody to come. And Peter first used this key in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, when he preached the gospel, how many people entered into the kingdom of God? Well, about 2,000 people entered that day. So we see that is the right way to use it, is to preach the gospel. But in contrast to Peter, the Pharisees were doing the opposite of that. Notice in Matthew 23, verse 13. Just turn there quickly. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 13. Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You see, the, the Pharisees were doing the opposite. They were closing the doors of the kingdom because they were drawing people away from Jesus and they themselves did not enter because they too rejected Christ. So we have the keys, but Jesus is the door. Jesus is the door to the kingdom. There's no other way. So, beloved, the first way Peter exercised the keys was through preaching the gospel. Now, with this interpretation, it's easy to see that these keys were not just given to Peter alone, but to everybody who comes to Christ, everybody who believes and is preaching the gospel, is opening the door for the kingdom for others to enter in. And here is a one simple observation we need to make. Um, it might be a bit too fancy, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. All right. Matthew 16, verse 19. How many keys are there? Are there only one or more than one? In verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys. Plural. But to how many kingdoms are there? So it's not like one key has one kingdom. Right? So see in your mind a bunch of keys hanging on a, a keychain. And Jesus gives to everybody who comes to him a, a copy of the same key that Peter had and say, here is a key for you. Now you preach the gospel and open up the kingdom. You see, so these keys are not just for Peter, it's for every disciple. And that's what we do today when we preach Christ as Savior and Lord, telling people to repent and to believe in Jesus. Then we too are opening the door of heaven. Have you ever thought of your evangelism like that? And when you share the gospel, you are opening the doors of heaven for others to enter in. But make sure you enter in as well. It is possible to preach the gospel and not be saved. So make sure you enter in and then open it for other people. What a massive privilege and responsibility we have to use these keys. But here's the second way. So the first way is through preaching the gospel. But the second way the keys are used is through church discipline. Through church discipline. Discipline. That's the second way these keys are used. And we know that that, that is what th this means because of the rest of verse 19. Jesus says, I'll give you the keys. And then he repeats the exact same words that he used later in Matthew 18. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And remember, Matthew 18 was talking about church discipline. So now we have to ask, what does this mean? What does this binding and this loosing mean? That's a very strange way of talking. 
But again, now if you just keep the context of church discipline in mind, then this is not so hard to understand. Jesus says the church has the authority to bind and loose church discipline cases in the sense of declaring that someone is either a Christian and forgiven of their sins or someone is a non-Christian and therefore not forgiven of their sins. So let me give you, just to make it concrete, when someone who professes to be a Christian but they then live in unrepentant sin, they don't want to submit to the authority of, of God or the word of God, the, the church has authority to bind on earth, declaring that person a non-Christian. That's what Jesus means. And in a similar way, when someone repents and someone says, I, I repent, I need Christ, I humble myself, I come to him, the church has authority to loose by saying that person is loose from their sin. That person is a Christian. Everybody behold a true Christian. That's what we can do. Now here is the key. No pun intended. Okay. The key to the interpretation of this verse, okay, I'm going to say it twice. The church doesn't make people bound or loose. They only declare people bound or loose. That's the authority we have. The church doesn't make people bound in their sin or loose from their sin. The church only declares it. That person is already bound or already loosed. Think of, think of a court case. Think of a court of a judge. Someone has committed a murder a, a year ago. And when the, church say, oh, when the judge says the person is guilty, the judge didn't make the person guilty. The person was already guilty a year ago. But what the judge is saying is now they are declaring it to be true. So the judgment is in line with reality. And the same way the church, when the church makes an authoritative binding and loosing on earth, it's declaring what's already true of the person. And that's what that second half of the verse means when it says what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The Greek tense means it's already bound. It's already loosed in heaven. And here's the amazing thing that this is actually very encouraging for us as a church. When we do this, when we say authoritatively as a church, that person is a Christian, that person is a non-Christian, heaven is in accord with us. It's already bound. It's already loosed in heaven. We can have the assurance that when we do this, God agrees when we act according to the word of God. That's a very key phrase at the end. In other words, what we say about a person is what God already says about that person. That's what verse 18 means in Matthew 18. Just to give one more verse that, that, that is in very similar to this concept. Um, Jesus says in John 20 verse 23, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, that verse just sounds blasphemous to say, we, how can we say someone's sins are forgiven? Isn't, isn't forgiveness only something God can do? But again, that, that verse, if you forgive, if you withhold, is very similar to the church discipline language of binding and loosing. Meaning, it's the same thing. When, the, when a Christian says that person is not forgiven of their sins because they're living in unrepentant sin, then it's, their sins are not forgiven. When we say that person is forgiven because they've repented, their sins are forgiven. I hope that makes sense. But here's the point we need to embrace. We have the authority to do this. Jesus has given the keys of the kingdom to us as his church. Are you using it? So think about the first way. Are you preaching the gospel? Are you 
opening the kingdom wide for people to come in? And then are we also using it in church discipline? Are we faithful to watch over one another, to correct sin when we see it, and when there's unrepentant sin, to come together as a church and say, we can no longer vouch for that person's professional faith. We can no longer stand with that person as a brother or a sister. Let us resist the notion of our age that the church has no right to include or exclude people from our membership and from the body of Christ. No, this is what Jesus gives us to do. Let us resist the notion that it is unloving or it's judgmental to do this. Let us not fear what people think of us. Let us only care of what God thinks of us. And let us do this. The proverb that says, 3 verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding is especially true in this case. Humanly speaking, you want to run from this. You want to... I have felt this temptation very powerfully in the church in Clarkstorp. I wanted to stop. I wanted to just forget it. I wanted to just turn a blind eye. But trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So let us be faithful as Christians to do this. But let us now close our time with the final aspect. So that is the power of the church to exercise church discipline. But let's focus now on the promise, the promise of church discipline. Beloved, Jesus knew this is going to be difficult. That's why he closes this section with promises to say, listen, I know you're going to struggle. I know you're going to be scared. I know you don't want to do this, but let me encourage you. Here is my word. Here is my promises. And he gives his promises in verse 19 to 20. Look at Matthew 18, verse 19 to 20. It says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Have you ever heard that last verse? Prayer meetings. Um, you know, if you're a very small gathering, you say, where two or three are gathered in my name. Now, again, I, I do believe Jesus is present everywhere and he's present there. But that's not the point of this text. What does Jesus refer to when he says the two or three? What does he refer to in the context? He's referring to the two or three of verse 16. Remember verse 16? That's the step two of church discipline when he says, take one or two others along with you to plead for repentance. In other words, this is what this text means. This is what this promise says. In a nutshell, Jesus says, when you do church discipline, you can be assured that I am personally with you. My father will be with you. He will listen to your prayers, and I personally will be with you. It's amazing if you read the Bible, and the single most important promise for fear, or fear of man, or fear of circumstances, or fear of whatever, is what? I am with you. That is such an encouraging promise, and we need to believe that. Moses, when he was scared to go to Pharaoh, think of, think of that, Pharaoh, the highest most powerful man probably in, in the known world that time. And God says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Go, speak to him. And he says, how? How can I do this? And listen to what God says, but I will be with you. God says, go, for I will be with you. Joshua, when Joshua had to take over of the, the, the command in Joshua 1 verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So now Jesus comes to us 
as Heritage Baptist Church and says, little flock, are you afraid to do this? Don't be. I am with you. When you do this, when you do this faithfully, when you take step one, step two, step three, you feel like giving up, you feel like this doesn't work, this doesn't make sense, this, don't be scared. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Be assured of my loving presence when you do this. And it's amazing how the Gospel of Matthew ends in the same way, with the other way of the keys, right? He says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you. Because that's also scary. <laughs> that's also scary to tell people about Jesus and make disciples. So the two scary things we do, Jesus says, I'm with you. When you make disciples, I'm with you. When you practice church discipline, I am with you. So don't be afraid, beloved. Don't let fear rule your heart. The fear of man is the opposite of loving man. Fearing man is loving yourself. Don't fear man. Love man. And tell them the truth. Show them the gospel. Show them Christ. And rest in these promises. And I want to say to all of you, the kingdom of God and the gates are open wide because Jesus has come. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the only way to God. There is forgiveness for all of you if you repent and put your faith in the Savior. Have you entered yet? Have you entered yet into the kingdom of God, into the gates? Or are you looking on the outside, spectating, interested but not committing? Come. Yes, count the cost. Being a Christian is difficult. But it's so worth it. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is God's promise for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you love us. Lord, your word says that you love us so much that you sent your only son to die for us, that we might have eternal life for all those who believe in you. Lord, and your word says that you also love those whom you discipline. You, you discipline the one you love. You reprove the, the son in whom you delight. Lord, when you discipline us through our trials, our sufferings, um, um, rebuke of a brother and a sister, when you correct us, even through the preaching of your word. And Lord, it's because you love us. You desire our good and our best, and you desire us to love Christ and hate our idols. Father, I pray for Heritage Baptist Church. I thank you for your bride, for, for this church. Thank you that you have saved us. You have changed us. You have opened our eyes to see our sin and to see Jesus as the only way. Lord, I pray that we would not be scared to practice church discipline when the time comes. Lord, um, this is incredibly difficult, just like it is to go and make disciples of all nations. But thank you for your promises. 
that you say that where two or three are gathered in my name and when we go and make disciples that you are with us. Father, I pray that we would truly taste the, the comfort of those verses in, in our lives. Help us, not to, help us not to let the keys of the kingdom just lay there picking up dust, but help us to pick them up and open wide the doors of heaven, the kingdom of heaven for all to come, that we may share the gospel with those who need it. Lord, people are, are desperately dead in their sin and they need you. Lord, let us be faithful to proclaim the gospel to people. Show them Christ and help us to be faithful to practice church discipline. And so love you in our obedience. Father, be glorified in our, our rest of the time here, Lord. And I pray that we would meditate on these words and help us, Lord, if we are unsure, if there's anything confusing. Help us to go and reach out and ask questions that we may know the full truth. And thank you that we can do that even in our church and here, Lord. And so, Lord, please glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.